Symbols are words that start with a colon. Symbols are just words that start with a colon. Constants are words, but all constants are capitalized. So this is Jeffrey Grossenbach. It's the Ruby on Rails podcast here at the offices of Bill Monk with... Chuck Groom and Gaurav Oberoi. And they run a site for managing personal finances with uh, with your friends, your roommates, all kinds of things. Of course, we'll hear all the details about that. Why don't you start off, uh, Gaurav, tell us what, what is Bill Monk, what do you do? Bill Monk is a site that helps you split bills and track debts. Okay. Um, you mentioned roommates. That's uh, that's a large number of our users are splitting rent, utilities, groceries, bills like that. Um, other use cases for our site, popular ones, are going on a road trip, a ski vacation, lots of bills of all sorts that you need to split, and you don't want to think about them when you're on vacation with your buddies. Half our site is all about splitting bills. It's about dealing with borrowing and lending with friends, taking the pain out of that. The other half is a different sort of borrowing and lending. I'll let Chuck talk about that. All right, great. So after launching the money feature, it was very popular. People started asking, hey, I don't want to just borrow and lend money. I also have stuff that I'm borrowing with my friends. So we recently added the ability to keep track of the collection of things that you own and also to track when you lend it out, lend a book to a friend, book or movie or anything to a friend. So you can look at your collection and say, Oh, here's what I own, and Gaurav is borrowing this particular copy of Prince of Persia. The other nice feature with the library is you can also browse what your friends own, which is great because then you pretty much end up with an ad hoc community lending library. And then we also very recently added the ability to make your collection, if you want to, completely public to show to friends and family or anyone on the internet what you own, including a badge image that you can put on your MySpace page. Or your blog. Or your blog. Both the ideas um, around Bill Monk are about borrowing and lending. And one of the interesting okay. things for us is we have this social network, you know, you and your friends. And we started with splitting bills amongst them. And then we layered new functionality on top of that social network. The people you split bills with are the people you trust enough to also lend your things to and let them know what's in your collection. And so the two map really well together and uh, our users have adopted both. And the commonality for both of these, as Garb's pointing out, is your friends, the people. And perhaps the most important page on the Billmunk site is the drill-down page for a particular friend, where it can tell you, hey, Chuck, you owe Gaurav $10 and this copy of a book. It tells you in an actionable, clear way what, you, what actions you take with your friend to settle up and become even. Now, can it tell you, uh, you know, you owe Gaurav $300, but he has your PlayStation, so maybe he can just keep that and call it even? Sort of. Uh, we don't actually make the, we don't make that kind of message explicit. Explicit, although it is actually possible to sell the items to your friends. Oh, okay. and create billing debts, and we actually look up our item data from Amazon, so we actually know what the Amazon prices of those items. So we can actually okay. propose when you're doing the sale, the fair market value of your item. So yes, is the is the long answer. Uh, we also support multiple currencies, so you can actually owe someone um, dollars, euros, and they can owe you a few rupees, um, which is great for the international traveler. Oh, so do you do that conversion? We actually look up the... So we actually keep them each currency in a separate bucket, okay. which is good. But then we also offer, if you want to, we do look up that day's conver, um, exchange rate 
for users who want it. And we do the math for you. So it's by default, we store them in different buckets. But as you enter something, you can say, I'm entering it in euros. I want it to be converted to dollars right now. Okay. Reason being, if we do conversions for you, people might disagree about what's ex- what's fair or what's not. We'd rather give friends the information they need to take actions, but we ourselves are not taking those actions. We're just giving friends information so they can make the decisions to, about which exchange rate they are going to use. So you're not a collection service. It's up to them to actually work out the details. Exactly. You're just giving them the information. Exactly. There's a general philosophy of Belmont, actually, and this is pretty important, is that everything we do is informal. These debts we're entering are very clearly not legally non-binding. It's actually really important because people are more inclined to use the service if you can enter a bill, which you're not exactly sure if the amounts are exactly right, but you're just entering it now so you don't forget, and you can go back fill the details in later. As well as, it also frees you up from fraud. If you're entering non-binding debts, then no one can really defraud you because you can disagree with what they entered. Uh-huh. At the end of the day, <clears throat> Billmonk is a replacement for the pen and paper that you use to keep track of things like this. We want to provide a tool that enhances existing behavior. We don't really want to encourage or introduce a whole new sort of behavior and impose it on people. So if there's a group of friends and they go and have lunch every day and they just round-robin deciding who pays, that's a great system and probably not a situation where these people would benefit immensely from using Bill Monk. But roommates who end up getting annoyed because I'm always buying the milk and no one seems to appreciate that um, might find Bill Monk as a way to smooth out and keep things happy. So yeah, if I can, yeah, so the reason that people use Billmonk is that tracking stuff with friends is really awkward. It's a source of a lot, it's a common social problem, and really it's based upon information, just you don't know really who's been paying how much. We are tracking all, we help you do the math of splitting bills, and we just keep a really accurate track of why do I owe you this amount of money. And friends tell us, roommates tell us, this just completely changes the roommate dynamic and makes everything much more peaceable. And we also get here from couples too, it's a common problem with couples, Making sure that you're staying fair, and one person doesn't feel like they're always being leaned upon. Yeah. The other person's always, and more importantly, you feel like if you if you lend someone money, sometimes you feel like you don't want to forget. You feel really bad if you've forgotten, and so it's a way to just offload all that stress and just say like, I'm tracking it. It's accurate. Done. Exactly, and even people you think you can trust, you loan some to them, and then you forgot that you loaned it, and then a year later, yeah, right. oh, that person still has one. Right, which is actually the nicest thing is um, also you're letting Bill Monk be the one to remind them. Yeah. So it's a third party. So it removes, it's a neutral third party that's reminding them. So you don't have to be the bad guy. You can let Bill Monk be the reminder. And um, Bill Monk doesn't have. And Bill Monk, with the name and the the branding, we tried to go with a kind of soothing, happy, neutral third party, the smiling, serene monk, as opposed to you know calling the website loanshark.com or something yes. like that, which would give it very negative and scary connotations. Well, we're we're here in Seattle. There's some big uh, software combination. A company kind of close to here. Actually, there are several, but why did you choose Ruby on Rails when you were going to build a site? One of the biggest reasons is Ruby itself. Okay. The the language is, it's a pleasure to, to write Ruby code. It's very, it's very easy to write a lot of code and functionality quickly. And to write something that's maintainable and is going to stick around and be legible down the road. So you could you could say there are other sort of scripting languages out there, um, interpreted languages like Python, and why didn't we pick that instead? Rails was the framework that was big and grow, growing in popularity when we started doing this. Um, Python had a couple, but they were nowhere nearly as popular at the time, and we didn't really see them. We didn't know if this is something we could count on down the road, so we decided to stick with Rails. But the overall reason of doing why we're do, doing scripting language in a framework in the first place is, of course, speed. 
we actually started speed of development. Speed of development, right? So we actually started um, working around. I think it was August, September that time. For, August, September, October that time frame. We started and we launched in January, um, which is pretty rapid if you think about it. Yeah, and that would not have been possible without Ruby and Rails. Yeah. Now, do both of you do the development, or is one the business and ideas, and the others is the coding? No, we split together. Everything. You split it. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it should be explained, by the way, that um, Gaurav and I come from a background of working at Amazon.com. We were both software development engineers there, too. And most of our coding there was done in C++. Yeah. Uh, which is great for you know a system which needs to worry about scale as deeply as Amazon does. For a website like ours, really, it's speed of development and ma- maintenance is really the things we have to worry about. So, so this this was the, a far superior tool to, for, for, that, for, those, uh, for optimizing for those constraints. I met someone a few weeks ago... From Amazon, of course, there are a lot of a lot of people who do work or have worked at Amazon here, but they express kind of doubt about Ruby because there weren't any installations of Rails that were on 1,500 servers all working together like there were at Amazon. But, I mean, that's it's taken them years to get to that point. Do you think in five or ten years, could Ruby run on that kind of a setup, or is that high, a very specific thing? Um, I would say that Amazon, I would, I'd be, I mean, it's really hard to say, and I'm sure they're always, they're always testing the sorts of things out, and I wouldn't be surprised if they had internal, you know, Rails development sandboxes to play with. Knowing Amazon, um, they'd probably be more inclined to try to build an infrastructure system like Rails themselves, okay. so that they could really tweak it for their own needs. Again, this is pure speculation. Ruby as a language, I'd actually strongly encourage Amazon to use. I think it's actually um, easier for developers to code in and maintain. Um, the legibility is so important and core business logic where you're really not dealing with lots of transactions and performance isn't necessary it, it, this is just far superior yeah the other thing is size of deployments too you have to worry at a place like Amazon about um, the size of your binaries and pushing them out and keeping everything in sync if you do everything statically linked with C++ you're going to get very very large deployments and very long build times yes okay and Ruby helps a lot and with that pain def- yeah because you can, there's no compiling. You just can deploy it, and yep, and there you are. The other thing is Amazon's architecture, and this has recently been public with I think a an article that was published with uh, Werner Vogels, but um, they it's it's a services oriented architecture. So it is you could imagine a day. So it's not like your end Ruby instances will all be talking to one giant database. They'll be making calls to services within the company that store various forms of data and massage it and get it to a point where end consumers can do something useful with it. Um, Ruby, really, the power there on Rails would be uh, the MVC and uh, front-end and the templating, really, um, as opposed to doing a lot of data crunching or reading directly from the DB. Well, I think the active record would be good for back-end services, too, outside of Rails, at least. Pulling that that into Ruby install itself would be a big win. Um, The other thing, too, about Amazon, I said the cheapest plus, they also have um, a lot of Java, too. Yeah. And Amazon, the, the reason I think Amazon's a great place to think about this in the future is that Amazon really encourages to have each team being fairly independent in its technology choices. Um, so it's probably likely that one team will try out, you know, a small team will try out Ruby and that it will sort of gain within the company. You'll see, like, oh, this team was able to do this really quickly. They're winning. Let's go ahead and go forth on that. Um, I know they have some concerns about um, the way that Ruby itself is architected, though. Um, there, ha- there are some issues with Ruby if you run it at extremely high scale, like it runs out of objects, object IDs, yeah, that mm-hmm. sort of issue. So Amazon, of course, will have to look at this carefully, as well as security issues. You have to do a full security audit, which will take time. So for a really big company, these are kinds of things which will just add a lot of overhead to getting it out there at the production level. 
even today, I think yesterday and today was the first Ruby conference in Japan, and it was announced that the next major version of Ruby that depends on YARV and the new virtual machine, all that, not until December of 2007. Seems a little far out. I was hoping it would be a little bit sooner, but, you know, there are a lot of sites handling a lot of hits already with the current Ruby, and so I'm sure it'll keep keep running until then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of the constraints that sites hit, you know, have to do with things other than the language itself. How you've designed your database, your database access. Okay. Those seem to be some of the first bottlenecks that people hit. Now, that can be a big uh, point of contention as well. Did you guys feel like using the database to its full capability was how you wanted to design it, or did you use more of the, the built-in 100% Ruby methods for constraints and validating data? That's a, that's a great question. We uh, diverged from using everything in Active Record for database access. Some of the common places we did that are, uh, so we have objects that are dependent on each other. I think the classic example is a blog post has comments, that yeah. sort of thing. Um, in Ruby, you can ha- use associations to automatically load these comments and save them. There are several situations in our code where we've decided not to stick with associations and write our own logic on when and how stale data is written to the disk or uh, when it's read from the DB. Okay. Um, and that helped us write more interesting and complex policies on when we should do this and also some transformations on the data right after or before we read and write it. It's only a few places where we really have to. Other places we go with the convention. So our typical rule is when it doesn't really, we don't really have to fine-tune performance or policies. We go with the conventions off of active record. But there are some cases where we have extremely complex models and policies associated with them. We really have to control it at our end. Okay, so sometimes instead of just using the built-in belongs to or has many, you'll write your own, so that'll be more optimized. Right, optimized as well as the way, you know. The other thing, too, is you want to be very, very careful with what the policies mean, and so you want to make sure that it's sometimes if it's really, really vital to the functioning of your site, that it's all right there. You you own that logic if it's really, yep. really important. A lot of people are worried, oh, you know, all these kind of functionalities built in, I have to use it, I can't diverge from that. But no, there, there's no reason. Well, that's the beauty. You can always overload what you don't like. You could write, well, this is a personal experiment. I want to write just a very small app and not use active record. What kind of, you know, it's not something that I would do consistently, but but just kind of see how flexible is the framework without all the rest of the pieces that are built in. I think one of the most powerful things about Rails is really active record. It, it is. It, biggest amount of code in the framework. Exactly. And it's... It's the biggest time saver, too. It gets you up and running the fastest. Yeah. We're big fans of it in general. So another thing, another issue with Rails for us is really documentation. It's a young framework. There's a lot of documentation, but not enough at the same time. Yeah. So dealing with some more advanced features, sometimes you don't know exactly how it works, and you need to put in a little bit of time experimenting and playing with it so you know kind of the boundary conditions and how these features are, are working internally. And, and at times, it's just not worth spending uh, the cycles to do that experimentation. Well, getting back to the site, Bill Monk, you have some interesting technological and just user-facing features. For example, you can send an SMS from your cell phone and, and follow some different commands, and you can actually add items into your account from your cell phone. How does that work, or, and why did you think that was important? So uh, when we launched, this is actually we thought this when we launched the site we thought this was actually going to be the killer feature and our users love this feature um, 
well, I think actually it's not the killer feature. There's lots of killer features, as okay. it turns out. But the idea is, with the cell phone, you can report bills when you're on the go, which is really important because you're at a restaurant. You just want to record, hey, I paid for my friends. I wanted to stop thinking about it, deal with it later. You're on a road trip with friends. Um, sure, I had a bar with friends. You lend 20 bucks to a friend. You remember right there. Use your cell phone. Everyone always has a cell phone, and now you can send text messages indirectly to a computer. And let the computer then just t- use the computer system to tell you. So our grammar is as simple as, let's say I went to dinner with two other people and ran up a $90 bill. The grammar for that would be 90 space 3 space dinner. There was a $90 bill, three people total, for dinner. You send that to us and we record it. And we say, hey, we know about this. We respond saying, we got your message. You, you know, you are owed, you know, whatever your share is out of that amount. And then you can go back later online, fill in the details, or you can actually, there's also ways to go back and forth and then add the other people right then and there. Hugely useful, hugely popular. You see it especially with the lunchtime crowd. Okay. Rumors of people going out together. And vacationers. Right, and vacationers. Now, one of the things which we did in order to launch quickly, and because we were very, very small, is we don't actually direct, directly interface with the carriers. We actually, um, this is only for mostly the US people in the US, most people in the US's cell phones can send SMS messages to an email address. So you send your text message to an email address, which is the Bill Monk domain, and then we can respond to that message which we receive as an email. Really super easy interface there. Um, the way that other companies, like you might have seen um, Google or text, mess- text groups, is they give you actually, they buy a short code, an SMS short code, typically five digits, and you can send an SMS message to that short code, and then it gets indirectly routed to their computers. A lot easier experience for the user. I would like to go that direction in the future. Unfortunately, it requires a fair bit of money to both register that short code, um, a monthly fee to maintain it, and you also have to build relationships with all the carriers. They all have to approve the application. It's a it's a cumbersome and expensive yeah. process. And individual carriers can actually reject it later if they don't like what you're doing with that service. Wow, so some will carry it and some won't if they decide to yeah. reject it. It's great user experience, but it involves a whole lot of business work. And when we were launching the site, we had to focus on development. So we're quite open to doing SMS short codes in the future. We just weren't ready for it when we launched. Another option is also just to reserve a, just a normal phone number and do it as, as a SIM card on the outside. So, so the way it works is we have a, a daemon process that's sitting and watching a mail queue. And a message arrives, it reads the mail, parses it, and then our, our rail stack has a web service API that it exposes to this daemon internally. So the daemon parses the message and then shoots it off to the API saying, a new bill just came in, here's who it came from, so here's who paid, and you know some other details. And then that goes through the same business logic that's being used on the front end that we get to reuse and goes and gets dumped into the database. Right. Okay, so you're using your own API internally to communicate between the different things. Yeah, so actually, yeah, so internally we're just using XML RPC for communicating between multiple processes, um, which I highly recommend everyone do if you have services that need to talk to each other. Okay, more than... Rest or soap or, or soap or soap any any of those anything all, okay yeah, all those are sort of you know, the same they're all cut from the same cloth but using web services through an HTTP HTTP like protocol saves you a whole lot of pain. It also means that our our live stack servicing the website you know a, a we're reusing a lot of this logic so we're not duplicating business mm-hmm. logic and little applications on the side. Um, we can also set it up to say you can do do a little bit of throttling as well as retries. So you can build a fairly stable system where um, if the stack is down because we're bouncing it or the mail daemon goes down, everything else still continues to work. Now, Action Mailer has some things built in where it can receive mail, but you're using a separate 
system to work. indirectly yeah so pretty much what we do is we actually build our own system action mailer is a great system once you have the mail object once you actually have the email itself getting the email to action mailers turns out at least when we were looking at it might have changed turned out to be sort of a horrendous pain yeah um the way that it was recommended in the docs when i was looking at it was actually to spawn off a new you know have just the mailer itself xm or go to proc mail to spawn off a new process per each new email that comes in and hand it off to a ruby process which gets action invokes or action mailer which can be kind of heavyweight if you have a pretty high volume of email coming in. Yeah. So we actually you have a new process yeah. for everyone that's coming. So yeah. what we actually do is we keep Action Miller in the Rails stack, and you actually just create a daemon which is just aware of looking at the local directory of the school files. And this and is it, a little yeah. Ruby program that does little, not use Rails. Yeah, Beansy. It doesn't actually it doesn't okay. peek too deeply into the mail message themselves. It does a little bit of spam checking. Um, you know, you can block people if you need to, and then it sort of bundles up the message itself and just throws it onto the wire for the Rails app to actually use the Action Mailer on, and then do do the interpretation of business logic on. But it's really smart. If the Rails app is down, it'll keep the message locally and retry. Okay. Um, so it's a nice, it's really nice. So you sort of let you let your you know you let Exum do what Exum does, which is drop the mail off. The mailer is the one responsible for making sure that it gets to the Ruby app, and then the Ruby app just handles the business side of it. it doesn't handle the, the actual you know messy system logistics of moving messages around. And you're not this. duplicating code anywhere because right. the Rails web service is. Right. is and the nice thing that. is also then you can put your mailer, you can make your mailbox a different actual physical machine than okay. the Rails box. So yeah. it also allows you to scale in the future by creating a box dedicated just to mail if you wanted to. That's brilliant. I'm using something remotely like that, and I should try that out because it seems like with big attachments, photos, files, whatever, sometimes just the built-in would croak on that, and so some other kind of combination could handle not only more process, more emails at once, but bigger, single, individually right. most. And should we point out, too, we actually use email for two different things internally. One is for these messages that you can send to the service. And then the other, of course, is just our support queues. Um, we really like it when customers um, contact us. And then we actually use these, this to actually deliver the messages reliably to our other... We have another app, too, which we use for tra- tracking customer contacts. Right. So what Chuck is describing is there's an application that Chuck and I monitor all the time. And it just says, here are the latest open messages in your, in your queue. Um, and then either of us can click on it, lock the message, respond, and it'll keep track of, uh, of the whole thread as well as any annotations we put in there and so on. Right. It allows us to do extremely fast and diligent customer support. It was written in Rails. I think Chuck wrote it like in a couple of days. <laughs> One day. <laughs> One day. Um, and, uh, and then reused the mail daemon and basically said, now listen to the mail queue for the help queue. And as soon as a message comes in, XMLRPC, this new Rails app, and say, here's a new message. So um, it's actually a nice bit of software that we might consider open sourcing. Yeah. The other nice thing about the mailer daemon, too, of course, it runs in user space, so you don't have to worry about running it as the XM user. Okay. Which is nice, too. So a little more secure. It's a little bit more secure, definitely. Now, I was going to get a cup of coffee. Which one of these is mine? This is yours. Oh, that's mine. Okay. (laughs) I owe you... uh, a dollar for the coffee, or uh, now this is Seattle. It'd be like three fifty, I think. <laughs> this is true. Capitol Hill, so it's a little, this, oh, it's competition, even, so okay, much cheaper. <laughs> so you're also using graphics in an interesting way, so people can actually post a graphic of their collection, or at least part of the collection, on MySpace or other sites, and not have to use JavaScript or, or some of those other things that are being blocked by some of the major social sites like that. How do you do that? Okay, so I'll start and then Gaurav will sure. get into the actual logistics. Um, so the library itself, which is where you can keep your track collection of stuff, you can actually enter items in two ways. You can describe it yourself, and you can tell us, like, if you sell us like a book, we'll ask you for the title and author, for example. 
Or you can actually just search. We actually have the um, interfaces to search on Amazon for the item and add it that way. The thing about searching on Amazon typically tends to be faster, and you get all the rich item data from Amazon, including pictures of the, of the actual item in question. Most people, I think like 90% of our items or so are done for our Amazon items. Okay. Um, but the nice thing about adding it yourself is if it isn't on Amazon, or you don't want to use Amazon, you don't have to. You can still put your stuff up. So the idea then is that most people have collections and they're proud of their collection and want to show it to people. A lot of people are sort of pack rat mentality. You know, like <laughs> stop getting here collecting everything and say, haha, look what I own, which is great. We love that kind of user. Um, and we wanted a way to let people um, publicize on MySpace or on their blogs what they own. Just an easy way to sort of get a snippet uh, showing stuff that they have. And the idea is that it would automatically go to BillMonk and grab a couple of their items at random and show it, you know, flash it up on those pages. Now, the problem was that there was no way for us to actually um, have this code for dynamically generating that system on these other services because JavaScript typically is not enabled. Yeah. And often there's iframes, so you yeah. can't even have like a little, a different okay. little window. Right. We have the logic on our end. so And even, yeah, so you're kind of constrained. And we decided the easiest way would be um, just to have those sites just have a link to an image on Bilma. So Bilma is serving up an image. And that we would actually render into an image, which we store locally in cache and periodically update, a picture showing, um, which looks just like a nice little tidy graphic, showing here's some of the things so-and-so owns. Click here to go to buildmonk.com and see the rest of the library. Yeah. Um, and so Gaurav can talk about the actual rendering aspect of that. Yeah, so um, some of the constraints uh, were if you're requesting an image, you, you should get a response back from our server ASAP because we don't want your blog to load slower because of this image on Billmonk. Right. Furthermore, we also don't want our Rails app to be spending a lot of cycles actually generating these images. And in case something goes wrong through the process, we have uh, Apache threads that are stuck and not able to serve uh, other requests down the road. So we designed a system whereby a request comes in for an image. Um, we have an action in a controller that intercepts this request and says, all right, I'm going to serve the image back to you. Um, at that point, it says, is there an image for this that exists on disk right now? Um, if there is, return it. If there isn't, send and uh, make an XML RPC call to another little application that we have sitting on a different box with uh, many more cycles for processing. It re receives it and says, I am now going to uh, spend my own time generating this image, and then it will be available here on the right. file system. And then we ba basically return a pointer to that file so, system. So the idea is you always synchronously return an image which you have at hand, uh -huh. Well, asynchronously determining if, hey, should I generate a new one? Yes. So we, what happens is we also roll a dice. So every time you send a request to us, we'll roll like a 10-sided die and say, is it time to regenerate a new one? Um, return what's on disk as well as shoot off a request to say, generate a new one so something new appears on the blog next time. Okay. So Rails has kind of a caching mechanism built in, but that was requires that one server is going to do the graphics and the caching and handling all that, but you kind of split that out so that one server can be generating all these graphics and the yep. other one can just hand it off and continue happily serving up the rest of the web pages. Exactly. So, Gaurav, you should talk a little bit about how the graphics themselves are actually generated and what we would have liked. Yeah, so what we're using is um, there are there's these great Ruby libraries for image magic. When a request is made, we basically go to your library and say, find five random books that you have. Okay. Make calls to Amazon to go and fetch these graphics onto disk, and then using image magic libraries, piece the little book covers or DVD covers together, write the titles next to them, stick it all into a nice little badge format with a Bill Monk header and footer, and 
uh, dump this disk, dump this whole image to disk. The image magic libraries are nice enough that you can actually do all of this in memory and then do one disk write. Okay. Um, so you're really processor bound, which is nice, as well as network bound to fetch the five images from Amazon. Um, but you can do some interesting caching there. Uh, so some of the other things that we're considering down the road for badge for badges are using something like Flash, where we won't we'll actually move away from using this whole image setup. But uh, Flash Flash has its own expenses associated with it. Yeah. What would have been ideal was if there was a way to render a web page, so we could actually create our little internal web page mm. and actually um, say you know sick gecko edit and say render this to a JPEG. Yeah. Sure, there's one company which does this, but it's proprietary. Okay. Um, yeah. But it's an open source application that's just begging to be written, or just a plugin actually. Let's say here's a chunk of HTML, render it, gecko dump it to disk as a JPEG, and then have it available. Browsers are so good at um, you know it's a language. Uh, HTML is a language everyone understands. They're so good at rendering beautiful things. If, was, if there was an easy way to just dump these right. to images, I think there'd be lots of applications for them. Then you could just use a regular Rails template. It could render the HTML, and then that'd get piped off to exactly. some little graphics. Bingo. It'd be rasterizer. So that that would be dreamy, and I think it's yeah, it's an application that's just ripe to be written. Well, email really, us if you guys are interested in it. <laughs> well, thanks. That's very interesting. I'm de- well. I already have signed up for Bill Monk, but I'm going to have to use it a little bit more now that I've know the people that made it and all the features. <laughs> you got a couple thousand people using it so far, but it's still still early. It's still young. Yeah, we have uh, 7,500 users using it. Wow. Um, we have actually there's 30 different currencies actively in use, so it's very worldwide too. Um, it's interesting how that that happened. Yeah, we're getting, we're growing and beginning to focus more on marketing and get the word out. And that is something. The currency thing is really important for anyone creating one of these applications to consider is that you will have a humongous user base um, across the world, not just in the United States. So you really should design your app with thinking that in mind. We don't support multiple current. We don't support multiple languages. But just having multiple currencies was really um, a feature our initial users begged for, we delivered on, and they really responded to. Um, interesting things, um, the biggest, in terms of volume of receipts user outside of the U.S., Singapore. Singapore. Mm-hmm. So people do a lot of social borrowing and lending in Singapore. Looks like it. Um, and also, you know, the and of course, then the, you know, the people using the euro are the next biggest group after that. Most interesting uh, currency, I think, is... Uh, from Kazakhstan, the Tenge. We got someone writing in saying, "Could you please enable this?" And we have a couple of users <laughs> out there. Yeah, <laughs> one of the more yeah one of the one of the weirder things that we did is we also added support for virtual online game currencies like World of Warcraft Gold. Um, oh, the lineage of Dina. So you can borrow and lend in those. Yeah, yeah, and our thinking was, you know, it's it's pretty easy for us to add currencies, and these are things that perhaps friends really are borrowing and lending gold in World of Warcraft. So why not track it on Billmug? You see, some people actually using these for, you know, borrowing lending stuff for, for, you know, weapons and whatnot. Some people also use it just, I think, in terms of just tracking with friends just general favors owed. I think we see some sysadmins, for example, trading 100 gold for taking an on-call rotation. So perhaps it's friendlier sometimes than using it for real dollars. Perhaps it represents something else. We don't know. We don't care. Just as long as it makes people happy, we offer it. <laughs> now, first, Chuck, I have to... To me, you're famous because a couple years ago I played your game called Spiked the old uh, Mac, and you just had two little uh, planes flying around, you had to try to yeah. bump another one into a big spinning spike in the middle, so uh, any kind of integration plan with uh, with Spiked? With Bill Monk? With Bill Monk? Yeah, it's actually going to be a secret <laughs> webpage you can go to, sort of an Easter egg, where you get to play an online version done with it. No, no. Whoever wins uh, eats all the debt. We're doing it all in Ajax. It. Yeah, exactly. 
exactly. <laughs> um, no, but um, yeah. So Spike, for people don't know, I wrote that actually when, when I was sort of end of high school, start of college. Um, two player, two player game, same computer. A lot of fun. Wish I had more time to write video games. I tried to download the source code, but that server is no longer up. So maybe I'll have to get a copy from you right can, now. Yeah, I can hunt it down somewhere. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, and everybody, check it out. BillMonk.com. Chunky Baker! Chunky Baker! Chunky Baker!